Well, welcome back from lunch, everyone. I know people are still on their way down. Um, uh, you're probably tired of seeing me since you just saw me. But uh, all I'm going to do now is I have the pleasure of introducing our moderator. She'll introduce the panel. Um, Laura Meckler, right here, is a national education writer for the Washington Post, where she covers national trends, federal policy, and the education department, which has come up on occasion. Uh, she came to the post of the Wall Street Journal, where she covered presidential politics, the White House, changing American demographics, also important for our discussion, immigration and health care. Uh, before that, she worked with the Associated Press Washington Bureau and covered state government in Columbus, Ohio. She got her start writing about everything from schools and cops to the annual Pro Football Hall of Fame Festival at the repository in Canton, Ohio, about 50 miles south of her hometown of Cleveland. Uh, I hope she'll actually answer the first question for this, which is who's heading to the Hall of Fame this coming year, uh, and how big an athletic subsidy did their department get at the college they went to? And with that, all yours. Well, luckily, this panel will not rise or fall on my knowledge of football. However, if anyone's interested in hearing about the fireworks at the Pro Football Hall of Fame Festival, I did cover those two years in a row, and, and spectacularly so, if I, if I do say so myself. Um, thanks, everybody, for, for coming to this panel. Um, I'm going to introduce our four excellent panelists up front, and then they're each going to speak for about 10 minutes. Then we'll, I'll ask some questions, and then we very much want to hear your thoughts and questions. So... David Hyman will kick us off. He's an adjunct scholar here at Cato and a professor of law at Georgetown University, a doctor and a lawyer, so your parents must be very happy that you didn't have to make that choice between those two. Except for the tuition. Except for the, well, there's that. Uh, focuses his research on regulation and financing of health care, has taught insurance, malpractice, a medical malpractice law, economics, professional responsibility, and tax policy, in addition to other matters. Um, at the Federal Trade Commission, he organized hearings on healthcare and competition. Earlier in his career, he practiced tax litigation and healthcare law. And he's the author of a new Cato book, Overcharged Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare, which I believe is available outside. Then we're going to go to Michael Dubow, who is a professor at Sam Samford University's Cumberland School of Law in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, his uh, Time in academia was preceded by a judicial clerkship with Judge Kenneth Starr on the U.S. Court of Appeals. He was also an attorney advisor to the Federal Trade Commission's chairman, as well as a special assistant to the Assistant Attorney General Douglas Ginsburg at the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. Uh, he teaches undergraduate courses in law and economics for, and, uh, for the business school at Samford and has also taught public health law. I feel like we have a lot of healthcare expertise on this panel as well as education expertise. Next, we have Sandy Baum, who is a re non resident fellow in the Center on Education Data and Policy at the Urban Institute and Professor Emerita of Economics at Skidmore College, who's an expert on higher education finance. She speaks and writes extensively about issues related to college access, college pricing, student aid policy, student debt and affordability. After this, over, this is over, she will be telling me whether I will be able to afford to send my children to college. Um, I'm hoping the answer will be yes. She's, uh, since 2002, she co-authored the College Board's annual publications, Trends in Student Aid and Trends in College Pricing. She's a member of the board of the National Student Clearinghouse and has chaired 
major study groups through the College Board and the Brookings Institution, developing proposals for reforming federal and state student aid. Um, and finally, James Qual, who I know the best. We, we met when he was working for John Edwards uh, doing healthcare policy, and I was working for the journal covering the uh, 2008 presidential campaign. Um, he is now the president of the Institute for College Access and Success, where he works for public policies that make college more affordable and help students earn college degrees. He joined TICUS after a long career in government, including time as White House Deputy Domestic Policy Advisor and jobs as a staffer in Congress on presidential campaigns and at the Department of Education. Over this time, he worked on policies to increase student aid, protect students against unaffordable debts, and simplify the FAFSA and increase graduation rates, some of which I'm sure we'll be getting into today. So with those introductions, let's uh, kick things off with David. So thank you. <clears throat> um, I have a piece in the uh, edited volume. It's actually the last piece. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, but uh, Todd, uh, when he asked me, I think he asked me to participate because, as you've already heard, although I do health care uh, law and policy, I think his starting point was I want to find a sector of the economy that's at at least as badly screwed up as higher ed and perhaps worse. Um, and so I actually uh, put in a paper uh, and talked about uh, nonprofit and for-profit enterprise in healthcare. And here it's uh, in higher education lessons from healthcare. Uh, so just to briefly outline my talk, I'm going to give you 30 seconds of motivation, uh, a minute of theory, a little bit about attitudes regarding uh, for-profit enterprise in healthcare, a little bit of empirical evidence, and then close with a personal note from uh, the chapter that I submitted. Um, so first, it's not a big surprise to people in the audience that there's lots of criticism of uh, for-profit educational enterprises. I've just grabbed uh, three and now five examples of headlines uh, highlighting concerns about the performance of for-profit institutions. Uh, one of the interesting things is there tends not to be the same uh, criticism of nonprofit institutions. And when there is, it tends to be institution specific rather than a broad based indictment of the entire market sector. Uh, more on that in just a minute or two. But the motivation, of course, uh, is we've got uh, institutions that are providing educational services. Uh, some of them are nonprofit, some of them are for profit. Uh, and what can theory tell us about the broader dynamics? Well, I think the starting point from an economic perspective is you would expect efficient organizational forms to dominate the market. Uh, because if it makes sense to have for-profit forms in the market, then that's what we'll see. And if it makes sense to have non-profit, that's what we'll see as well. And so you should expect some levels of market division even within <clears throat> education just because of the survivor bias. Uh, the second point is, uh, market failure in the form of informational asymmetries has long been the justification for the use of the nonprofit form, certainly in healthcare to a lesser extent in education. If people have a hard time figuring out the value of the services that they're purchasing, the use of the nonprofit form provides some reassurance that uh, management is not taking the money and running or cutting on the quality of services in ways that are hard to observe or monitor. Um, that said, there are competing predictions about the real-world behavior of nonprofits. Uh, in the words of one author, are they just for-profits in drag, or are they virtuous exemplars? Do they actually behave uh, in the ways that we would hope they would in deciding to use them? <clears throat> well, the nice thing about healthcare is there's been extensive study of this issue comparing nonprofits and for-profits 
which in healthcare tend to compete head-to-head -head in a variety of markets. We see both nonprofit and for-profit acute care hospitals, nonprofit and for-profit nursing homes, home health care agencies, and so on and so on. We don't tend to see the dominance of a single form. And there have been a series of good reviews of that literature. <clears throat> so let me just uh, start, though, with attitudes about the nonprofit form. Uh, Jill Horowitz, friend of mine who wrote a nice review of the literature, uh, I think highlights the consensus that people believe nonprofits are more trustworthy, they're more likely to act in the interests of their patients, they're less likely to interfere in the medical judgments of physicians, and less likely to behave competitively in markets. And note that that's viewed as a good thing rather than a bad thing. Um, I think opinions might vary on that depending upon who you ask. <clears throat> Another way of uh, seeing these attitudes play out is found on the web. Uh, about the for-profit form. This is a, I hope, joke example of a physician recruitment form for a for-profit hospital. The first question is, did you receive a grade higher than a C-plus in biomedical ethics? Presumably, if you did, you don't get to get hired. Um, another question is, do you agree to abide by the concept of omerta in all dealings with your employer? Uh, for those of you who don't remember The Godfather, it's you've taken a bow of silence about the, the dealings. Um, and it's not just hospitals. Uh, this is a blog post from a couple of years ago uh, describing for-profit insurers, which, by the way, dominate the market for health insurance. Uh, they are, quote, morally bankrupt parasites that threaten to financially bankrupt our health care system. And you read that and you think, what undergraduate wrote something so foolish? Uh, it turns out it's a physician at the University of Chicago uh, who's, you know, well-regarded and I'm sure very good at his job. But this is a nice example of the sort of conventional wisdom about the performance, the behavior, the expectations that we have for for-profit enterprise in healthcare. So then the next question is, okay, what do we actually know about their performance? This is a review by Frank Sloan, a distinguished health economist from 2000. Uh, and his conclusion is essentially they pretty much behave the same. Uh, and the more competitive the market, the less likely you will observe significant differences between the for behavior of for-profit and nonprofit institutions. You don't seem to get much mileage out of the reliance on the nonprofit form to address the informational asymmetry problem. Similarly, uh, Jill Horowitz in a 2015 review uh, is a little bit more optimistic, but <clears throat> she notes the research is mixed. Um, and several articles demonstrate uh, that when it comes to some types of performance, nonprofits appear to provide higher quality services depending on the types of services studied and the data source. So it's not a systemic advantage or improvement. It's you can find isolated pockets where nonprofits are better and other pockets where for-profits are better. If you look at financial behavior, you basically see they all behave the same. Um, so institutional forms don't seem to matter very much. Now, what about the delivery of charity care? That's something that people feel pretty strongly about. Uh, it turns out this is from a CBO study of 2006. This is the cover of the report. Uh, and the top, uh, it's just a, a distribution of the share of uncompensated care uh, provided by institutions. The upper uh, box are nonprofits, the lower box are, are for-profits. The mean for uh, nonprofits is 4.7 versus 4.2 for for-profits, so there's a little bit of a difference. But the more interesting point is there's very substantial overlap in the distribution of 
charity care provided by nonprofit and for-profit hospitals. Some nonprofits don't provide any, some for-profits provide a lot. Uh, and it's also important to keep in mind nonprofits get a tax subsidy and for-profits pay taxes. And so if you really want an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, you need to do adjust for that. So you can look at that and say, well, that's, you know, uh, 13 years ago, that's a lifetime ago in healthcare. So here's a more recent study uh, published in 2015 looking at charity care in California between 2011 and 2013. And the red bars are the for-profits, the uh, purplish bars are the not-for-profits. You basically get, again, very substantial overlap. So what does this tell you? It tells you you're not getting much mileage out of the nonprofit form. What's really important is how competitive the market is because that influences the behavior of institutions regardless of their institutional status. And in a world where most institutions of higher learning are either nonprofit or governmental, that should suggest to you some obvious implications for how we ought to be thinking about policies to push those institutions to do whatever it is we want them to do more of and to stop doing the kinds of things we heard during the first two panels. Uh, administrative bloat, uh, lots of meetings, where the meetings are devoted to first talking about what we talked about last time and then what we're going to talk about next time, uh, and so on and so on. So let me close uh, with the personal note that I ended uh, my own uh, chapter in the book with. Um, I've been a law professor for 25 years. I've taught at five different law schools, two of which were nonprofit, including my most recent employer uh, at Georgetown, uh, three of which were public institutions, Illinois, Texas, and Maryland. Uh, over the course of those 25 years, I've worked with um, some wonderful faculty and some wonderful administrators, um, and some who are clunkers and duds. Uh, but the striking thing about it uh, is the common element across all of these institutions is the degree to which the terms and conditions of employment are systematically rigged in favor of the incumbents. Uh, and that's partly the faculty, it's partly the administration, which collude against everybody else. Uh, you don't see that in other sectors of the economy where competition and market forces drive incumbents to serve consumers' interests. Um, and there's, I think, no guarantee that heavier reliance on a for-profit form and on competition more broadly will be able to disrupt this cozy cartel. But nothing else we've tried has actually worked. Uh, and maybe it's time we put aside our visceral hostility to the use of the for-profit form both in education and in healthcare, and try something different. And I cede the remaining 30 seconds of my time. Well done. So I'd like to thank uh, Todd and Neil first for the invitation to be here today. I've never been in the Hayek Auditorium before. It's quite a thrill for me. Um, and I have to see in, in that light, it seems to me like the question, is competition the key to getting the tower back in order, is something of a softball question to be answered in the Hayek Auditorium. <laughs> I, I, think, I think I'm supposed to say, yeah, yes, it is. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's an important, it may not be the key, but it's certainly a key. And so what I want to do today, I don't have any slides, but I do have a handout if anybody wants it. I've got some extra copies. be happy to give it to you after the talk. And um, uh, you can email me, and I'll send you the send you the document, and the links will work. So you might want to do that. I just want to update my chapter in the book, uh, the, which addresses 
uh, really the, the sort of recent history of the for-profit higher ed industry. And it was written, the, the meeting, I'm not sure this has been uh, noted before, the meeting that it was originally presented in was in October of 2015, which is really quite a long time ago as this subject has developed. And when we were getting the book ready to, to go to press, I was able to update it through the um, early, very early days of the Trump administration. So it's, it's updated to that extent. But we have obviously a lot more uh, information now about what that will look like and um, the administration's attitude towards uh, for-profit. So um, uh, let me just uh, briefly recap the chapter in the book for those of you who haven't read it yet. I'm sure everybody wants to, you need your own personal copy of this book. So um, please take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, my, my basic um, uh, uh, conclusion is that if you accept the goal of what was described by Professor Frischler this morning as universal higher education. I'm not sure you should accept it, but if you do, if that's, if that's the direction you want to see uh, uh, the United States uh, uh, pursue, then it makes sense for taxpayers to hope for the survival of the nonprofit form, and um, uh, primarily as a force for cost containment. And that's for uh, four different reasons, all of which were noted by Todd in the last session. Uh, For-profit higher ed does not carry the tremendous burden of a very expensive tenured faculty. So inst instructional costs are lower. It has much less bureaucracy. So administrative costs are lower. It has much less in the way of bricks and mortar. So the capital costs are much lower. Um, in addition, um, uh, nonprofit higher ed doesn't receive direct taxpayer subsidies through public appropriations as all publics and most nonprofits uh, uh, non do. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the profit motive is a spur to the managers of the for-profit institutions, giving them a much greater incentive to innovate, especially in the marketing of higher education and in course design, uh, specifically with regard to the uh, student populations that are said to be the target of the expansion of higher education access, lower income uh, students, weaker students, uh, non-traditional ages, and so on. And for that uh, point in the paper, I uh, reference an excellent article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives by three um, uh, economists at Harvard that bear all that out. They, their um, um, conclusion in 2011, I think it was, was that for-profit colleges are nimble innovators and a, a welcome addition to the, to the higher education market. Now, that was before all the negative publicity and criticism really erupted about the sector, the, the for-profit sector, and in particular uh, what, what I call in the chapter the dodgy marketing practices of some of the colleges or at least some of the campuses of the, of the for-profit colleges. And that's all uh, admitted in, the, um, in, the, in my chapter, uh, but also co contrasted with similar problems that exist in, in uh, nonprofit higher ed. Uh, and I, I give a number of examples in the, in the in the paper, but I'll just mention the Academically Adrift book that was mentioned this morning by Arum and Ruxa that document that roughly half uh, college students don't earn anything much at all, apparently, uh, as a result of their stay in a uh, nonprofit um, college or university. So, so there's a lot of blame to go around, it seems to me like, on that, on that front. So what I want to do today is use uh, the, the last five and a half minutes to update the paper on three points. Uh, first, I want to say a little bit about what the Trump administration has been doing in terms of a friendlier stance towards nonprofits. 
but then uh, explain that this doesn't seem to have helped the non-profit, I'm sorry, the for-profit sector very much if you judge from enrollment numbers which continued to decline in the for-profit sector. Secondly, as also as predicted, we've seen several dramatic conversions of for-profits to non-profit form. Will such transformations satisfy the critics of the nonprofits? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I've got a couple of examples of that. Uh, oddly enough, this seems to vindicate uh, Henry Manny's uh, view that all education is for-profit education. Let me say that again. The conversion from for-profit to non-profit vindicates the view that it's all for-profit <laughs> after all. So a little more about that. A couple of things about the Trump administration. Uh, as, as most of you know, all of you know probably, you've got negotiated regulations ongoing with respect to two rules um, adopted in the Obama administration that caused a good deal of uh, trouble for the for-profit sector. That would be the gainful employment rule and the borrower defense rule about forgiveness of federal loans. Um, uh, suffice it to say that critics of the administration uh, uh, think that all of the activity in this direction is going to prove harmful uh, to students and to taxpayers, and it's all quite controversial. Uh, no, no time to get into the specifics on that uh, today. Um, ultimately, I'm not sure the Trump administration's uh, uh, greater um, uh, openness to for-profit education is going to make much difference. Enrollment in the sector has fallen to below a million students. Uh, spring 2018, 925,000 students compared to 992,000 students only a year earlier. This compares to the best year ever for for-profit higher ed of 1.6 million students. If you look at it from 2010 to 2018, that's a drop of over 40%. The market share of the for-profits has declined from 8% in 2010, roughly, to 5% today. I also want to mention the decline in enrollment at the University of Phoenix, since that's kind of the... Uh, uh, flagship, I guess, of the for-profit uh, sector. Uh, they are apparently down below 100,000 students now compared to 155 in 2016 and their peak of 470,000 students in 2010. Uh, it looks as though the um, uh, market's judgment on for-profit enrollment is driven by a couple of uh, causes, probably, uh, not, not least of which would be uh, economic improvement over the last couple of years. But uh, industry observers also, kind of the ones I've been able to, uh, to, to research, uh, seem to say that the uh, consumer's estimate opinion of for-profit higher ed is, uh, is uh, declining, really uh, has declined greatly. I don't know how much of that could be attributed to the Obama administration's hostility to it, how much of it is just the negative publicity surrounding the investigations and the admissions of, of misbehavior and all of that. But, but that's the paradox. The administration, current administration, is more, um, more friendly towards for-profit higher ed, but enrollments are dropping uh, uh, precipitously. Second thing that's happened since, uh, uh, since I looked at it the last time around is you had a, a, a large uh, upsurge in online nonprofit higher ed, in particular the Western Governors University, which is owned by something like 13 state governments has about 97,000 students now. You've got Southern New Hampshire University, which is nonprofit with 100,000. And Liberty University, a nonprofit, has 85,000 students. So they're all about to pass Phoenix in terms of enrollment. Uh, 
the first two being right at the size of Phoenix, apparently. There have been um, dramatic conversions of nonprofits, I'm, I'm sorry, of for profits to profits, probably most significantly the Kaplan purchased by Purdue. Then the sale of uh, the campuses from the Education Management Corporation to Dream Center, a nonprofit which has since gone bankrupt. You've got Grand Canyon University that's gone from for profit to nonprofit. There's a similar conversion pending at Bridgepoint University and the Florida Coastal School of Law, I saw just the other day, um, is um, trying to, to change itself into a nonprofit. All, all pretty interesting. Um, uh, will, will any of this make a difference, the, the move from for-profit to non-profit? I found a couple of authors that express real skepticism about this, uh, one of whom, Robert Shireman, is a, a longtime critic of the for-profit sector, and he's quoted in a story in the, uh, Inside Higher Ed as saying, the wolves are putting on sheep's clothing and hoping the rest of us will not notice. Uh, a reporter from uh, ProPublica, if I have that here, I don't. Um, uh, writing about Liberty University uh, said uh, that, uh, oh, here it is, I'm sorry. Um, as, a, as a nonprofit, Liberty, uh, unlike Trump University, which he was comparing to for some reason, uh, faces, as a nonprofit, faces less regulatory scrutiny, even as it enjoys greater access to various federal handouts, which suggests to me that some people are just not going to catch a break. I mean, if you're a nonprofit, you're bad for those reasons. If you convert to being, I'm sorry, if you're for profit, you're bad for those reasons. If you convert to nonprofit, I'm not sure. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., that's his name, is going to get, um, get the blessing of the reporter from uh, ProPublica ever on this. So um, I'm running out of time. Red light's flashing. Um, bottom line, it seems to me like as long as Phoenix resists the conversion to nonprofit, the, the impulse to do that, that the for-profit sector will have some kind of future, not least of which because Phoenix is now owned by a group of investors with close connections to the Obama administration. I'm assuming their political risk looks a little different than um, uh, uh, other investors in the industry. I don't know how that would work, but that's just my suspicion. And so um, uh, uh, my advice to the, uh, to the uh, current education department and any future one would be uh, to treat for-profit and non-profit on an equal uh, footing. Uh, neutrality with respect to organizational form would seem to be uh, called for here. That's a boring point to end on, I know, but it's the most lawyer-like thing I can think of to say. I don't, I don't see any reason to treat for-profit and non-profit differently in the, like in the, in the um, uh, recently announced uh, neg reg about online regulation at the Department of Education. Right. So, sorry. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and I'm particularly happy to be here because I know that uh, the invitation uh, was with the expectation that I would disagree with a lot of the things that are being said by other people. I do, but I also agree with things, and I think that one of the biggest concerns is that we tend to set up these conversations, like many others, as the extremes. So I am very worried about many of the abuses uh, in the for-profit sector. I don't want the for-profit sector to go away. So arguing about about whether we should have a for-profit sector, I think is really not the point here. We should have a diverse higher education system as we do, it should include for-profit and non-profit, private and public institutions, large and small, et cetera. So that's really not the question. The question is, 
Are we serving students well? And are we using taxpayer funds appropriately? And when, the, when it's framed as, is the problem that we need more competition and less student aid, then I think, oh, wait a minute. Let's first, the student aid question is, is easy. I'll do that one quickly. No, we don't need less student aid. Uh, the suggestion that, uh, up, that if only people had to pay 100% for their own education, the market would work well, uh, is basically a suggestion that says, people who don't have the resources to pay for their own education, we shouldn't worry about them. That's their problem. If education really pays off, they'll just figure it out and go. And uh, that is not the goal of our system. And we also know that higher education carries a lot of positive externalities, that it benefits not only the students, but also others. So we need to support students. We need to support student success. We need to make sure that institutions have the resources and students have the resources uh, so that more students can succeed. But the question of competition, actually sort of the conversation bewilders me a bit because having taught introductory economics for many, many years, you know, the first thing you do, you talk about the wonders of perfect competition, but you talk about the conditions required for perfect, perfect competition to be met in the market. And they just don't exist in higher education. I mean, the idea that consumers will vote with their feet, students have far from perfect information about the education that they are purchasing. I mean, we just heard an example of how maybe students don't, maybe students have a misperception that for-profit education isn't is bad because they read an article about it in the paper, but maybe they have a perception that because they saw an advertisement on the bus that it would be easy and simple, that it's good. We may disagree about the misperceptions, but I think we agree that the idea that either 18-year-olds or 27-year-old single parents who don't have a college degree and, and really don't know many people who went to college are in a position to actually decide uh, based on the characteristics of what they're getting what the best decision for them is. There is not easy, an entry, easy entry and exit into the market. All the institutions are not price takers. The products are not identical. This is not a perfectly competitive market. And there's a lot of third-party payment. So the idea that the for-profit sector represents competition and the market just makes no sense when the vast majority of their revenues actually are coming from the federal government. So we need to think together about how to make sure that we improve quality in higher education. And um, I would say that really the problem, we talk about higher education as though it were monolithic, but it's obviously highly segmented. The highly selective institutions are doing fine, thank you. I mean, they may be too expensive. They may be competing too much with each other and therefore spending money on things that don't really contribute to education. Everybody's got to just be a little bit fancier than everybody else. Competition is not helping that. But what we haven't figured out how to do is really teach underprepared students, how to help them learn, how to make them productive citizens. And I think that the biggest thing that we could do is focus more on teaching and learning in higher education. The goal is not just to find people who can teach and who will do it on the cheap or will do it quickly. The goal is to recognize that teaching is a profession, that people need to be trained in it, that they need to learn how to do it well. People can learn how to do it well. Different student bodies need different characteristics um, in teachers. But if we don't focus on what students learn as opposed to just how many people have a credential and you know how much tuition did they pay and how much did they borrow. All those things matter, but it really matters how much they learn. The market is not itself going to solve this problem. The market needs to be supported by constructive regulation, needs to be well designed. 
Students and institutions need better incentives. We have some really bad policies. We have some really bad regulations. But we also need to support those incentives with strong regulation. And I think an interesting case in point now is one that came up is, has to do with the negotiated rulemaking that's going on now about online education. There is currently a rule that says there has to be regular and substantive interaction between instructors and students. And there's a move to get rid of that. And we know there is lots of evidence that online education, which actually dominates the for-profit sector, although also a number of nonprofit institutions, um, what happens is that the success rates of underprepared students and students from disadvantaged backgrounds are much lower in those courses. The socioeconomic gap is actually larger in online, fully online learning than in the classroom. So, and, and the problem seems to be that there's not enough contact between instructors and students. Now, there is online learning where there is that kind of contact, and that's great, but let's have that in the online learning that we think is one of the solutions um, for making higher education more affordable and increasing access to higher education. So we need to do a lot, and different actors in the higher education scene are going to contribute to this in different ways, but it is not gonna happen just because we have profit-seeking entrepreneurs out there trying to make money. It is going to happen because we do more to understand the needs of students. And let me just add that the defense that we shouldn't expect good outcomes from the for-profit sector because they are educating or trying to educate at-risk students is really problematic. Of course we don't expect a community college to have the same completion rate as Harvard. Of course not, we have to consider that. But if we say we are enrolling students who have virtually no chance of succeeding and they're not succeeding, what do you expect? The federal government is paying for that. This is not doing anybody any good. That is no excuse. We cannot have such low expectations either for students or for institutions. So we all have to stop debating is it for-profit, is it non-profit, and think about how as a society we can do better to educate our students. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the chance to add my two cents. Uh, I will say the, the panel I was invited to had the topic of what policy reforms are needed to get higher education performing the best it possibly can. I think that there are important questions outside of the profit motive and competition. So I want to talk to for-profit higher education because of the comments of our panels and the contents of the book, but Laura, maybe in um, the discussion, we can get into some other topics too, like the contents of the Higher Education Act and some of the other reforms. I think that, um, like Sandy, there is a, like Sandy, I think that there's a role for for-profit colleges that they have made important contributions in serving students well, especially non-traditional students. I also don't think that Nonprofit status is a is a cure all um, or a guarantee of quality, um, but I do have a couple of observations from my time as a regulator of for profit colleges that I think might be helpful. Um, the first is another term you might use for for profit college would be a federally funded college. So the differences between for profit colleges, public colleges where the vast majority of students go. And nonprofit colleges go far beyond organizational form to the basic questions of how they're financed. For-profit colleges get about $4 billion a year in Pell Grants, about $12 billion a year in student loans. Most for-profit colleges get 
70% of their funding from the federal government. And that is just from the Department of Education. If you include DOD benefits and VA benefits, one in five colleges get more than 90% of their funding from the federal government. So you're not talking about creatures of the free market that exist independently of federal subsidies. If for-profit colleges were not created by the federal government, they might as well have been because the terms and conditions of federal student aid dictate the behavior of for-profit colleges. Uh, The second I would add is the primary form of quality assurance that exists for for for-profit colleges is consumer choice. And we may have some ideological disagreements about how much confidence to place in the mechanism of market choice alone. But I would observe that, one, it's very difficult to get accurate information on the quality of college performance. Even as a regulator, it is very difficult to get comparable information about what students are paying, uh, how many students are graduating, what their employment prospects are after graduating. So despite determined effort over eight years of the Obama administration, efforts of some states since, it's actually pretty rare to get accurate information on employment outcomes and learning outcomes, you know, forget about it. Second, many students do not have in practice a real choice. Now, if you, intend, if you attend college online, you do have a lot of options, but most students like to go to classes in person. And a recent study out of the Urban Institute found that in Virginia, two-thirds of students have only one or no colleges within 25 miles of their home. So while some of us from elite backgrounds see a nationwide higher education marketplace, I travel 3,000 miles from my home to go to college, that's not true for the vast majority of students seeking a college education, and certainly not for the population that's being served by for-profit colleges. And then the third point I would make, and Michael referenced some of the high-pressure and deceptive sales tactics, these were documented by the Senate Help Committee in an influential report they published a few years ago where they got access to the training materials used by a lot of these colleges. And you saw uh, quotas being used, high-pressure and deceptive sales tactics, employee training and how to emotionally manipulate potential students. The GAO did an undercover investigation where they sent... um, investigators to apply to 15 for-profit colleges. At every single one, they saw deceptive or misleading information. At four, fraudulent. So the marketplace is not one where students are getting reliable information to make their choices. The third point I would make is we do see a problem of quality in practice at for-profit colleges. And I would just say, you know, I would put it this way. There are a lot of colleges out there, for-profit colleges, that I certainly would not want to see someone I cared about attend. We see hundreds of programs where the average graduate makes less than the poverty line. We see programs enrolling hundreds of thousands of students where the typical graduate cannot afford to repay her debt as measured by expert guidelines for affordability. Uh, We see 47% of uh, former for-profit college students defaulting within five years. We see 75% 
and negative amortization on their student loans two years after leaving school. So there are widespread problems <laughs> that we see in the sector. Uh, Stephanie Cellini, who is a professor at George Washington, looked at employment outcomes at certificate programs at for-profit colleges and found that, on average, the earnings gains were smaller than the student debts. So on average, these students would have been better off not going to college at all. Um, and of course, these problems were illustrated quite dramatically by the collapse of the nationwide chains, Corinthian and ITT, both of which got into trouble due to uh, deceptive sales tactics that led to regulator scrutiny. And ultimately, each of them left tens of thousands of students holding hundreds of millions of dollars of student loans uh, out on the street in the middle of their education. The last point I'd make, because there was some reference to gainful employment, and you know, I'm not an unbiased observer of gainful employment. I worked hard on it. It gave me uh, most of my gray hairs. Um, but I would observe that we have seen dramatic improvement in the for-profit industry since the gainful employment regulations were created. And what gainful employment did was we said we're going to look at actual student debts held by graduates of for-profit college programs and career education programs at community colleges. And we're going to go to the Social Security Administration, we're going to get their actual wage data. And we're going to ask, are those debts reasonable relative to the earnings of graduates of those programs? And we found that in many cases they were, uh, but in some cases they weren't. You had graduates uh, typical graduates, not outliers, but typical graduates with student debts that um, exceeded the likely earnings from the program. And after we uh, announced that proposal, we saw immediate improvement in the for-profit sector and the value that they were offering students. The University of Phoenix created a free orientation program. Kaplan created a free trial program. Uh, Strayer created a new scholarship program. A number of colleges shortened the length of their credential programs to reduce their cost. Uh, they improved the quality. They invested more in instruction. Uh, and as a result, we saw an improvement in the value that colleges were offering students. So in my view, um, these programs are federally funded. Uh, if, we are, if we think that they are enrolling too, few student, too many students, graduating too few, helping too few found jobs. That is because of the financial incentives created by the federal programs. It is because of the lack of standards, quality assurance for those programs. And it's appropriate to have federal regulations to protect both students and taxpayers for getting a return on the billions of dollars that they invest in these colleges every year. Thanks. Great. Thank you all for those really interesting comments. Um, I have a few questions of my own, and then we'll throw it out to you all. Um, I'd like to just sort of pick up with what James was just talking about, and maybe I'll throw this to you, Michael. Um, you know, given the large amount of tax money that is going to the sector, the fact that they do rely so heavily on federal money, you know, what's wrong with the a demand for increased scrutiny for them as well? And that the, and, and I should say the increased, the large amount of money combined with the history of deception and manipulative practices that not all of them have, but certainly some of them have. What, what's wrong with saying that this is a sector that is ripe for 
some oversight. Um, my main point is that it's, the oversight should be consistent between nonprofits and for-profits. The, the same problems about sort of underperformance and you know uh, uh, questionable value and all that can be raised about nonprofit education as well, right? And there are plenty of people that get degrees that don't seem to result in great job prospects or, or any of that. And uh, so, I mean, I just, I don't think the form of the organization should dictate different levels, more, more scrutiny of for-profit than, than non-profit. So would you support applying the rules that have applied to for-profits on non-profits as well? Or do you want to see it all rolled back? Well, it's not, I mean, I guess it's not really a question of what I want to see. Because to me, the, 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 the source of all of this is the third-party payer aspect of this market. The students that make the decisions about where to go are, in a sense, spending their own money because they borrowed it from the federal government, right? But it's also easy for us to talk about it as if it's some federal expenditure and so taxpayers have, a, have a, an, uh, an interest in oversight and, and uh, the proper administration of the program. I mean, which is it? Is it a student decision about how to invest borrowed funds or is it a government subsidy? And I don't know enough about kind of the default rates and what the recovery looks like on defaulted against student loans and all that. I'm kind of a, I'm sort of an amateur at all this, to be quite honest with you. But um, it's, this is not, th these, these programs are not limited to for-profit students. They're, it's, it, students and nonprofits have the, have the same sets of problems. Maybe they're not as severe. But if you're concerned about it in the for-profit realm, it seems to me like you need to be concerned about it in the in the nonprofit realm as well. Let me let me just mention. I mean, Western Governors just had an Inspector General's report at the Department of Education recommending that the government sue Western Governors University, which sounds very public spirited, right? Western Governors University for seven hundred and thirteen million dollars of federal funds that were expended on students taking WGU online courses. And it all had to do with whether it's an online course or a correspondence course. And the IG's office said, well, it's a correspondence course, and so we should sue to get this money back. And the secretary recently announced she wasn't going to accept their recommendation, would not sue to get that money back. But I mean, it certainly looks like, well, there's a, there's a nonprofit that you know, built their uh, students of $713 million and sold them um, uh, a poor quality uh, educational uh, experience, right? So, you know, they're not going to sue about that. And the, and the WGU has apologized, and they're going to get into compliance and all that. But that's a that's a, a nonprofit that has behaved in a way that I, I don't, I don't want to demonize them, but if I wanted to, I could make that sound pretty bad, right? So, I mean, I, I just don't see why we need different types of regulation for the different so, sectors. James, why don't you take that on? Why not apply the gainful employment yeah. rule to everybody? Why does it only apply to for-profits? Well, I think that it may be appropriate to have standards for all types of colleges to ensure that students are, can repay the loans that they take out. Now, the gainful employment standard applies to all career education programs, the majority of which are offered by community colleges although the majority of those that fail are at for-profit colleges. And um, I think that's appropriate. I think when you look at other types of higher education, the transaction is less clearly economic. And if you look at earnings outcomes at Oberlin or um, a rabbinical school, they're quite low. 
And that doesn't mean those colleges aren't good at what they are trying to do. And so I think we, it may be that we need to have a different standard for career education programs and for other types of programs. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have standards. And, and you know, and I, I think it is a little bit simplistic to say to the federal government, you should treat all colleges the same because they're, they're not the same. When you go to a, you know, a public college, that 70% 70, 70 of students go to public colleges, they receive most of their funding from the state. The state appoints their board. The state uh, has all kinds of policies that apply to the faculty, to the student aid, to how the program is run. If you go to a state policymaker and say, we need your help with these for-profit colleges, and they say, like, why? Like, those are creations of the federal government. Those aren't my problem. I'm busy running the public, the public higher education system. So to say to federal policymakers, public and for-profit colleges should be the same ends up meaning, is, is, is um, I think, ignorant of the reality that, in fact, they have very different accountability structures through their different, the different levels of government. Um, let's, uh, let's pick up another point that was made about sort of the future of of for-profits, that, you know, in, in attendance is going down, enrollment is going down. Um, it is obviously a battered sector. Sandy, what, what do you think is the, is the future? I mean, do we, are we, is this uh, just a force of that? The economy today, a strong economy, lower enrollment, and it'll, it'll pick up again as economic cycle turns, or have we, is there some sort of a threshold here? Well, the, the for-profit sector grew at an astronomical rate over a few years. So what's happening now is that we're going back to sort of a more normal state of where the for-profit sector plays a role, but not the large role that it played for a few years. And obviously one of the factors in the declining enrollment is the economy, as someone mentioned earlier. Uh, during the recession when you couldn't get a job, people went to college instead of getting a job. Community college enrollment has also declined quite a bit because adult students now, <coughs> excuse me, have other options. <clears throat> so I think we need to hope that what will happen is that the for-profit sector will become healthier because some of those that are the, the biggest abusers will go out of business, and those that are doing a good job of providing important opportunities for students will stay in business and educate the students for whom they have the best options. And I don't think just how we, we have a great tendency all over the place to just say, look at the drop now without thinking about the, the horizon over time. And so it, it's fine. It, it's a good thing, I think, that the enrollment has declined. I, I don't want it to go to zero. And I think that this question of the divide between the nonprofits and the for-profits is really important. The Western governor situation is one of the things I was referring to when I talked about the importance of stu students interacting with instructors. They are a big culprit. Obviously, having for-profit, non-profit status shouldn't exclude you. But that distinction that James made about what is the goal of the educational program is a critical distinction. And if we just say the only purpose of any, any education is to get a job and maximize your earnings, we've really lost the goal of higher education. David, maybe we could pick up on this. I mean, you made an analogy between healthcare and higher education, but it, it seemed, and I have no expert on this, but having covered both of these subjects at various times, it seems like in healthcare, you have a situation where the nonprofit and the for-profit hospitals are basically doing the same thing, and same thing with the insurance companies. They're more or less doing, there may be some differences on the margins, but they're basically the same types of institutions where in this case, the for-profits look really different 
from the nonprofit. So I'm wondering um, if is that really a fair analogy? Well, don't blame me. Blame Todd. He asked me to <laughs> uh, to put in a piece that looks at this. I think it it is and it isn't right. The point of the study is that the more competitive the market, the less institutional form matters. And to the extent you have um, uncompetitive markets or government restrictions on entry, you will see dominance of one form, um, and then it may well behave in a different fashion. Um, the point of the chapter is you shouldn't just say nonprofit good, for-profit bad, or vice versa. You should look at the individual institutions uh, and the incentives that they're subject to because that's going to influence their behavior. Um, I should also add I have no brief for, you know, force, fraud, or duress by for-profit enterprises nor any particular allegiance to the incumbent providers of for-profit educational services, and neither should the rest of you, right? The issue should be are they doing a good job uh, in exchange for the money they're getting both from their students and from the federal government. But that insight should apply to nonprofit educational institutions as well. We should ask what are they, are they providing value sufficient that people should, you know, leaving aside the, the fraud question, uh, are we providing enough information for students to understand if I major in this, my chances of getting a job are 70%, and if I major in this other thing, my chances of getting a job are 20% or less. I guarantee you the people in the program where the employment prospects are 20% are not out there telling the students, head over to engineering rather than stay here. So I, I think you know there are many of the same problems, uh, perhaps less uh, egregiously framed, um, and they don't tend to attract Senate, you know, help committee investigations. Uh, but you can wander onto any local campus and divide the students into those for whom their education will lead to all sorts of benefits for them and positive externalities for others, and other students who will never be able to repay their student loans. And that's just not at colleges, it's also at law schools and other in places. Well, having sort of set the table with obviously there's a you know difference of a point of view here about generally how these should these um, types of institutions should be approached by government. We have you know two very well at least semi-active uh, endeavors. One uh, underway: the regulatory rulemaking, negotiated rulemaking process at the Department of Education, and also. Um, in Congress talk of reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. So I'm wondering if each of you could just tell me one thing, the, mo the most important thing you think in this realm that you would like to see come out of one or the other. It can be If it's the same for both, then, and it could be rolling something back or adding something new. Um, what you'd like to see the department do or Congress do, like I said, if it's the same for both, that's fine. Do you want to start? I, I don't have anything other than just the idea of neutrality between the, the two sectors. Mm -hmm. If you could adopt that as sort of a governing principle for the rest of it, that would be a good a good start, I think. Okay. But I'm not. I mean, I'm sort of like not an educational yeah industry okay. person, so I don't I don't have any other particular right. point of view here. James, you're an educational industry person. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, one thing we've been working on a lot are student loan default rates and. When you look at federal efforts to measure the outcome of education programs, default rates is really the only one that is established and widely accepted. It was created by the first 
Bush administration in response to the first time there was widespread abuses in the for-profit college sector, and it measures what students, students who go uh, at least 270 days without making a payment, uh, that is a default, and you're, ca- you're captured in a rate if you default within the first three years of leaving school. Over the course of the 1990s, the default rate um, came down dramatically. Uh, hundreds of colleges exited the program. Um, the enrollments overall continued to rise as evidence those students found better educational opportunities. Um, and the default rate continues to have wide acceptance. There's an established process to verify the quality of the data. Colleges accept its validity. It's tied closely to the federal interest in um, protecting the integrity of student loans. Um, and there are changes that we think need to make, be made to improve its effectiveness as an accountability mechanism. Uh, colleges are able to um, game the rate by putting call- students in forbearance so that payments aren't due. That's counted as a successful repayment, um, for example. We think the line is too low, and there are no incentives to improve unless you're close to the line of losing eligibility. So we think there should be more incentives up and down the scale for all colleges to improve their default rates. So that's something we think would be a very important outcome from Higher Education Act reauthorization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So feel free to respond to that or to offer your own thought. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with uh, Michael on the importance of uh, neutrality across provider type uh, or vendor type because let's face it we're selling educational services to people uh and how we go about regulating uh, i'm open to the possibility you might want to make specific adjustments for specific types of things um, but you shouldn't just say again for-profit bad non-profit presumed to be okay i think the other uh suggestion i would make is if default rates are uh, such an important criteria, we ought to aggressively disclose those to people who are applying to colleges up front uh, using a sort of report card approach similar to what we see in other uh, attempts to regulate through information disclosure and say, if you go to this school, pursue this degree, here's what we think the probability you will default on your student loan is. That creates a pretty powerful incentive for the vendors of the service to start paying attention to whether they're adding value and who they're letting in. Mm-hmm. So on the regulatory front, I really believe we need to make it so that we do not provide student aid, grants or loans, federal student aid, to students enrolling in institutions that serve almost no students well. It's not enough to provide students with information because it would be if we all saw that information, we would choose to go someplace else. But the students who are most vulnerable, one, don't see the information, two, don't process it, and three, there's a normal human tendency to say, but I'm going to succeed. So it needs to be more than information. We need to eliminate uh, the worst institutions from the federal student aid programs. But let me just add that on the legislative side, on this loan issue, we need to, and Congress can, simplify and rationalize the student loan repayment system to income-driven repayment simple system so that we can stop having this crazy national conversation that's a panic about student debt instead of a rational conversation about investing in higher education. Great. All right. Well, this is great, great conversation so far. I'd like to bring you all into it. Who has a question or a comment? Um, after we'll start over here. Um, please give your name and affiliation. We should. We have. We have a good fifteen minutes or so. So everybody should have a chance. I think. My name is Paul Schemmel. I'm a state legislator. In my state, I've seen data in regard to uh, our land grant college 
that it is started programs that admit marginal students. So same, I think student-based that probably would be the traditional student in a for-profit institution. Um, the matriculation rate of those students is under 20%. So this is not even students that graduate with a degree and can't find a job. They don't even graduate statistically. Um, I wonder, are, are conventional nonprofit schools, especially large ones, starting to sort of play in this market? But because they have so many students that are sort of your traditional students that generally do well, that it masks the ill effect that maybe a, a for-profit school, uh, that ill effect is not masked because that's the majority of their students. Anyone want to take that? Uh, well, a number of these studies that look at student outcomes adjust for student demographics and um, program types. So the Cellini study, for example, that I mentioned comparing um, community college and for-profit college programs found um, substantially better value at community colleges and negative value at for-profit colleges. Um, I'm not going to tell you that's true across the board or in the case of every community college, um, but I think that... Um, uh, um, you know, you really are talking about different challenges there. When you're talking about exciting things that have happened to improve the value of community colleges, for example, there's um, a program at CUNY um, that has taken um, low-income students who need academic preparation who are not yet college-ready and doubled their college graduation rates. It's called ASAP. So there are... Um, initiatives underway that have great promise to improve the quality of public institutions as well. So, so oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add, I mean, I think we do know, as evidenced by the CUNY ASAP program, how to help a large, much larger number of these at-risk students succeed. We need resources to do it, and that is frequently a problem. But we also have to have a conversation about, you know, we want students who aren't very likely to succeed to enroll and have an opportunity, and we want more of them to succeed. But everybody isn't going to succeed, that's okay. But in some cases, we are pushing students and giving them money to enroll when they have such a little chance of succeeding that we should be thinking about the paths that would be most constructive for those, for those people to become productive rather than going to college. Okay, right there. We'll kind of make our way across. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Theodore Gebhardt. I'm a retired antitrust lawyer. Um, I'm not, I may simply be uninformed, but I'm not sure I fully understand what's meant by competition in higher education or what the market for higher education is. Competition presupposes some kind of identifiable customer base. Is the customer base the demanders of college graduates, i.e. employers, where the freshman is the raw input and the graduating senior is the output, or is the customer base the student and his or her parents? Who would like to explain this? So at, at, several inst at, at least one institution that I won't name, um, but it, it, you could call it Morgetown, uh, the, 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 the saying is the students think they're the customers, but they're actually the product, right? So the complication from a conventional antitrust analysis is, you know, are, we, are the students our customers? Is our future student, that is after they've had the education, 
um, and have had success that they could not fully appreciate the value of what we're offering to them. At least that's what we tell ourselves when we read the mean student evaluations that they fill out about us. Um, uh, is it the parents? Is it the federal government? Is it the trustees? I, I think there's certainly a lack of precision about those sets of issues. Um, when uh, I talk about increased competition in the market for educational services, it involves some combination of additional entrance, so changing the barriers to entry dynamic, the accreditation model that tends to uh, basically allow the incumbent members of the cartel an important vote on whether they will be competed against, the geographic limitations on accreditation, uh, so your single accreditor can basically impose a, a standard approach uh, through a wide swath of the country. Um, as we heard at lunch, there are ways in which there are escape hatches. Um, but I think, you know, the unbundling of the services more broadly uh, where the incumbents don't get to dictate, everybody has to have this particular approach. And the reason why I do that, again, for the market I know best is legal education. Uh, there are law schools in this country where everybody who goes to the law school passes the bar. And then there are law schools where a third of the people who go to the law school pass the bar. And that second category is every bit as abusive as the for-profit institutions that uh, the HELP Committee focused on and that uh, we've heard about today. Um, but they have this halo of, oh, they're trying to do the right thing and they're nonprofit institutions. Bull, they're exploiting their customers, whoever they are, just as egregiously as the nonprofit, as the for-profits that we've been talking about today. Laura, okay. could, before we move on, I, I think this is related to the question a little bit um, in terms of what the product is. Um, I just wanted to mention, I think we've gone the whole day without anybody mentioning the term signaling in connection with higher education. We've been using this sort of human capital model where students go to college and they learn things and those things are useful for when they get out. Um, the, the alternative explanation is one where I go to college in order to uh, demonstrate I'm the kind of person who goes to college and I can follow directions and follow through and, you know, conform and all of this. And, and uh, uh, Brian Kaplan's book of about a year ago uh, has really sort of changed the way I've thought about a lot of this. And I wonder if thinking about the sort of weaker students and the non-traditional students and their... Uh, possible career tracks uh, in terms of the signal their choice of institution sends to future employers might, might help us think through some of this. I haven't, I haven't done that yet, but it seems to me like the signaling explanation of why people want to go to college is at least as powerful, if not more powerful, than a human capital kind of model. Okay. Others? There in the bow tie. Thank you. I'm Robert Chandran. I'm a retired economist. My question is primarily directed to Ms. Baum. I was very sympathetic to the case that she made to help poor people get a good education. But it sounds to me that we've had a public school system which is 90% government provided, which is failing in its task, and therefore, a lot of these people are trying to distinguish themselves by trying to get a college education and get ahead. But the problems actually start a lot earlier. 
And all this discussion that we are having is because university education is now, as somebody mentioned, 30% of high school graduates, an unusually high percentage. If it were about 10%, not quite as low as five as it was some years ago, would all these problems still arise? I totally agree that a large part of our problem has to do with what happens to people before they get to college age. And it's not just the K-12 system. It's families and neighborhoods and healthcare and everything else that goes on. And we need to solve those problems in order for higher education to be successful. I think much of the discussion about higher education um, perpetuating or exacerbating inequality is really about the problem of the inequality before college. That said, Given that we live in a society that has not solved those problems, we higher education has to have a responsibility to contribute to solving these problems for some students. We've expanded the definition of higher education, right? We are saying that institutions that are helping people to make a transition, not to get bachelor's degrees, but to make a transition into the workforce from high school because they're not ready when they graduate from high school are part of the higher education system. And we need to work on those. It would not be a Right. And you graduate students who are unprepared, and you offer the same solution to the university. It's too Right, but you got to do something with those people who are out there now already the products of that flawed system. You can't just write them off and hope for the next generation to do better. I don't. Okay. Can, can I just make one quick point, yeah. which is we vastly overstate the number of students who are not prepared for college level work. I just talked about the, AS the ASAP program that CUNY runs, that's directed at students who need remediation. We have doubled the number of graduates there they have. Uh, studies of developmental education find that in many places, completely skipping developmental education leads to um, the same outcomes. So um, there are people who are, in fact, the data demonstrate ready to succeed in college prep work or could with uh, a well-designed intervention that are being um, sent to remediation where they never get out. Okay. Did you have a question here? I'll be quick because I want to hear Todd's question, frankly. But uh, <laughs> um, it, it, this is good because it sound, it, we're opening up the discussion because a lot of the discussion here has kind of been taking higher education in a silo, and a lot of the problem is, in fact, K through 12, where you have you don't have the customer, so to speak, the parent being able to choose the school. You don't have parental choice, uh, which is a big uh, problem, it seems. You don't have a lot of the options, like I mentioned earlier, the apprenticeship option that in Switzerland they have 70% of kids go through an apprenticeship program, kind of a tryout where businesses will often uh, pay for part of the uh, expense, and a lot of the kids who frankly can't and don't want a college degree, can get a, a good career that way. And the other thing is, of course, that if you start opening up those options, especially <clears throat> parental choice at the lower levels, you get away from some of the problems of a university that hasn't come up a whole lot here, and that is that they're indoctrination centers for a lot of the anti-free market policies that many of us have been fighting uh, rearguard actions for uh, for decades. And then you really get a true market for education, careers, and the whole thing. It seems you have to open up the discussion uh, like that, like the gentleman here was, uh, was, was, was saying. OK. I think that we'll just let that stand as a cost comment. OK. Um, when I, you know, 
when I hear about the sort of the scandals in um, um, the for-profit <coughs> sector, you know, uh, Michael mentioned the dodgy marketing. I don't mean to trivialize those because they were <coughs> obviously bad things, but they seem like child's play compared to the Penn State football team, to the Michigan State gymnastics team, to the North Carolina basketball team, where they had imaginary classes that they signed athletes up. The epidemic of uh, of sexual assault by athletes on college campuses, and and what's that all about? Money, it's money, it's money that the nonprofit and the state universities are doing. It's dodgy marketing to build a gigantic football stadium and basically have a bunch of kids who aren't in any meaningful sense uh, uh, a students. We know that nonprofit universities essentially sell spots on their admissions classes to big donors. We know, I won't mention, but David listed his uh, uh, schools, uh, right? We know that government, uh, state schools, basically politicians get their kids uh, admitted into the schools uh, um, because they have political clout. And I think the, the, the general point is, is that all of, it seems like all of these institutions, whether they're government, nonprofit, for-profit, there's money, there's power. This is a tr multi-trillion dollar industry with trillions of dollars of, uh, of employment and uh, uh, capital. And it seems like they all just have different sort of benefits and different corrupting influences. Um, and I think, you know, athletics is a good example of it, but you can just kind of replicate it, uh, replicate it through. Yet nobody says the North Carolina basketball team shows we need to have, you know, more scrutiny of, uh, you know, state universities. Anyone want to respond to that? Yeah, so while I was on the faculty of a place we'll call the University of Schmillinois, um, <laughs> we had not one but two admission scandals. And as I tell, tell people, when you have to number your admission scandals, <laughs> it's not a good sign. Um, but, and this is a point I make in my chapter, the consequence in nonprofit and state institutions when a scandal happens is to say, isn't it terrible that this bad thing happened at this particular institution involving these particular people who had bad judgment um, or were villains or, you know, you can fill in the other incentives. But then this is the, the, those, the let, well, me, let me just finish yeah. the point. Whereas when this happens in the for-profit sector, um, we have basically what psychologists would call a fundamental attribution error. We blame the the form itself. It's not about the people, it's not about the specific institution, it's about the sector of the market. And it seems to me that's a psychological error, right? Everybody's responding to the incentives that we've created. If we don't like their behavior, we should change their incentives. We shouldn't fixate on the specifics right. of the form or the identity of the individual institution. But just to play devil's advocate here, isn't the um, isn't a difference between those scandals that one sort of implicates the federal um, student loan program directly, and those other ones are horrible things that don't directly. You can you can them. identify scandals at nonprofit and state institutions that implicate lots of federal funding. In fact, um, I mean, I can think of several off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, Todd picked egregious examples that don't involve federal funding. Okay. All right. I think we have time for what one more. Should we should we go? Oh, All right. Two more questions. Who has a burning question, something that ha a topic that has not been raised here? And it's going to be really great that everyone's going to be walking out saying, that was an awesome question. <laughs> All right, front row. Thank you. Well, okay, let's not talk basketball. Let's talk 
real world. Let's go five miles from here, University of District of Columbia. This, I just got this off my cell phone, college scorecard. What's the graduation rate at the University of District Columbia? 14%. Six out of seven students entering don't graduate. Let's go to my home state, Central State University. Average earnings after attending, 26,100. Less than the average earnings of a high school graduate in the United States. What percentage are paid at least $1 down on their student debt? 17%. Why don't we have, no one's mentioned skin in the game. Why don't we have colleges have skin in the game and pay, uh, pay some consequences for this? Why do we allow these schools to exist? Isn't it immoral, isn't it immoral to uh, entice low-income people into a school when six out of seven of them aren't going to graduate? And you know damn well they're not going to graduate when they start. So anyway, James, do you want to take that? I mean, <laughs> do I defend UGC? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like Richard and Todd are arguing with me. I'm in favor of stronger accountability. I think that uh, the UNC scandal does show we need stronger regulation of government of college sports. You know, I think we need stronger standards of for-profit colleges. I think we need stronger accountability across the board. So, you know, if if we can agree. Let's not roll back the regs on for-profit colleges. Let's try and work together to address the problems at other types of colleges. Then, you know, sign me up. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question. Is there a woman who wants to ask a question? We've had all men, I've noticed. Anybody? All right, well, you don't appear to be a woman, but I'll call on you anyway. You're right there. Hello. Um, so I, I got some interesting data points uh, from the college board. Um, so these are uh, graduation uh, rates uh, for four and six years, respectively, for public and uh, private for-profit universities. So starting with public in four years, we got 33.5%. Uh, private for-profit, 22.5% in four years. And then in six years, uh, the same public and private for-profit are showing 57.7% and 31.9% in six years. So going back to Jabao, I, I think that there is some reason to scrutinize these private for-profit universities a lot more with abysmal rates like that. And, you know, it's almost ironic uh, that it seems that people are actually voting with their wallets to not attend these universities um, because the prices are higher, $15,610 as of 2016 versus $9,410 um, for public universities. Um, I think that uh, Ms. Baum isn't entirely correct, and it's almost naive to think that people don't want employment after they graduate, um, after making such significant investments um, in themselves, or whether it be their families or friends who are making, putting up some of this money. Um, I think that, well, the Shumterian in me uh, wants to say that the combination that will solve this problem um, has not yet been um, found, obviously. Um, and so I was wondering whether or not anyone has some input about whether or not splitting up some of the inputs into um, universities, whether it be assessment uh, or um, teaching or some of the fixed costs such as re uh, fixed costs such as buildings and infrastructure um, would help the problem. Okay, Sandy. 
Is there anything I, you want to I, I, I was trying to, if you're suggesting that I said <clears throat> not everybody wants a job, that's not what I said. Uh, what I said is that there are different goals, and maximizing income is not the goal that we should uh, put forth for all of higher education. And I'm not sure I understand um, the rest of the question about dividing things up. So um, I okay. can't really. Well, we'll just let, let it stand as a comment. Um, uh, Neil, are you going to wrap us up here? I will. Nobody needs to stay up there if they don't want to. Okay, if you want, I will, I will be brief. And I want to thank uh, Laura for moderating. Excellent job. Um, it's my job to sort of, uh, well, not just sort of, to actually provide concluding remarks. But the reality is I didn't draw grand conclusions from, uh, I thought, what were really excellent panels talking about all sorts of different aspects of higher education and dealing with all sorts of different solutions and possible problems uh, and, and really approaching higher ed in lots of different ways. So what I'm going to use this time to do very briefly, because what we really all want to do is go out and buy books and uh, chat and debate with each other, I'm just going to sort of point out something that I point out all the time when I talk about higher ed, which I think has come out in one way or another in every panel, which it strikes me that a major problem is subsidies. And I think we've seen this throughout. This is really, I'm not going to make a huge argument about subsidies because I only have a short amount of time. But as, as I thought about the entire program, subsidies kept coming up. So we first talked about uh, a lot in the first panel about public and land-grant universities. And I think what we saw is there's been some mythology built up about public land-grant, especially universities, as being this sort of economic dynamo that really uh, moved the American economy. And I don't think that what we found that that's really true. And what we've also found is that, or at least there's the suggestion that land-grant universities have moved away from their mission, which was originally provide services for the people in their state, but in large part because there are subsidies coming from students, I think, there's a strong tendency we're going to put away these missions that don't have high profile, that don't get us the high rankings, and we're going to move into what gets us high profile and gets us more money, partially from students who carry high subsidies, partially because if we're the really well-rated public college university in our state, that's what gets us money is the prestige that goes with being with that institution. We talked a lot about gatekeepers and the problem of we would like our institutions to be able to have the independence to try different things, for new institutions to come into existence and do things very differently. But what makes that very hard is, again, the subsidies. Because the subsidies, primarily from the federal government, means there must be some control. And in order to set up some control to make sure that that money is used well, we say let's use accreditation. Let's say you have to go through these institutions, these accreditors who say whether you survive or whether you don't. Because the reality is if you're a college university that doesn't get federal student aid, your chances of survival are almost nil. There are a few colleges that do it, but very few. And so it's that subsidy that requires the gatekeeper role that really constrains, I think, the ability of higher education to become innovative and to respond very quickly to changing needs of, of students and the workforce and lots of other things we'd like them to respond to. And then I actually think, uh, and I think it's been discussed in this last panel, that there's a huge benefit to profit. Profit actually drives people and has driven schools to, be, to seek out new students, to let students know that there are services to them, and to innovate in the way that those services are delivered. But I also don't think that there's much debate that there's some 
terrible performance in the for-profit sector. The reality is there's terrible performance throughout higher education. But when James said that for-profit colleges should actually be called federal colleges, federal universities, that really resonated because that's true. Because so much of the money people are using to consume that higher education is a subsidy. It comes from somebody else, which fundamentally changes the calculus of how efficiently you are going to look at what you consume. But of course, that is just my view. It's just one of the views of the root problem. I think I actually got it right, of course. But what I really encourage you to do is get this book and read this book, because this book gets into much further depth than I certainly did, and that even we could go into our panels in all sorts of problems in higher education, and I think gives a really good sort of arc that follows the arc of today's conference in much more depth and enables you, I think, to really grasp and to grapple with what is troubling higher education. So with that, I want to thank all the authors of the book. I especially want to thank all the panelists who came today, not just in this last panel, which was excellent, but all the panelists. Judith Eaton, thank you for coming and being our luncheon speaker. And with that, I encourage you to keep debating these issues amongst yourselves, but to do it outside where we have snacks and drinks and book sales. Thank you. Thank you.